You know, we all have this tendency to be self-deceived. We block out the evidence right in front of us. It's the person who's angry that you say, hey, you seem to be losing your temper. And they say, no, I'm not. I just know how to call right and wrong, black and white. Okay. It's the person who's a perpetual victim. You kind of nudge and bring it up and they're like, I'm not a victim. Life is just really hard on me all the time, right? Okay, well, you sound a lot like Eeyore. Or, or, or how about the, uh, the boss or the colleague who is angry all the time? And not only that, but they think they're incredibly humble. And they pride themselves of humility as a high value of mine. Yet all of their colleagues who work with them would call them incredibly proud and arrogant. It's the person who sees himself as very relational. And maybe they are, but they're also known as the office gossip. How is it that we can have evidence all around us showing that we're not lined up to truth, yet we don't see it? Well, today we get a front row seat to exactly that. In fact, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, we see that Saul cannot see the evidence or hear the evidence around him that he's disobeying God. Samuel confronts him. Samuel comes to see Saul and Saul says, blessed are you among the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. To which Samuel says, what then is the bleating of sheep I hear? And what is the lowing of oxen in my ears? You see, Saul had been told to kill the oxen and the sheep. And he tells Saul, I did it. I obeyed. And Samuel's like, um, I can hear the evidence that you didn't do it. So today I want to give you some tools that we all need to explore our ability to deceive ourselves. But before we get there, we're going to have to look at a dilemma. And I'm going to have to give all of us some tools to understand the most difficult passage in the Bible. Let's look at that together because it's going to take some time to unpack before we can dive into the tools for our own blindness. Again, this is the dilemma. This is the chapter of the Bible that's most quoted as why you can't trust God, shouldn't believe the Bible, and why the God of the Bible is not good and not trustworthy, but actually a genocidal maniac. So almost every atheist and skeptic has referenced this passage. So hold on tight as we read it together and then try and understand it. Here's the passage. So Samuel turns to Saul, and remember Saul had already disobeyed God a couple chapters ago, and this is his redo. Now the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Therefore heed the voice and commandment of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of the hosts, I'm gonna punish Amalek, a king of the Amalekites, for what he did to Israel many years ago, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. All right, so do what I'm telling you. We gotta go and we gotta kill the king and the Amalekites, but he goes on. Now, go and attack Amalek. Utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them. Who's them? 
kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Oh, do you feel it? Like, don't you wish that wasn't in the Bible? Is there any type of context or any type of, of environment that would allow a good God to say that type of thing? Why would Samuel say that? Why would God command that? Why would Saul be required to do that? Well, we're gonna try and investigate that together, looking at the culture, the context, and the countdown for the Amalekites. And it's gonna be tough, and it's gonna be difficult but I want to try and help us unpack this in a way that will understand God's goodness in the context of this horrible, horrible circumstance. Now, again, Saul says he gathers the people together. He numbers them to prepare for battle. 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to a city of the Amalek, which lay in wait in the valley. So we're going to begin by looking at the culture of the Amalekites. In other words, has there ever been a modern equivalent where severe, terrible, tragic means were needed for a greater good? Now keep in mind that this only happens twice in the Bible. Now why is that important? Because an atheist or skeptic will say, God always does this kind of thing. No, there's only two times in all of recorded biblical history in a very specific instance, under very specific parameters that God requires this. Once of Joshua with Canaan, and the second one here with the Amalekites and Saul. So is there a modern equivalent of a time that this level of severity was needed for a greater good? Well, I can think of one in our modern history, and that's World War II. World War II, something tragic happened. We dropped a bomb in Hiroshima, and it killed a lot of innocent people. The Bible said within the ethics of war, you should try and always minimize civilian casualties. It was a brand new idea brought in the book of Deuteronomy and God's law. Well, in this case, we warned the people. We dropped pamphlets to tell all the innocents, try and get out of the city, something bad is coming. We tried to negotiate. But in World War II, under the ethics of war, and also in the context of dealing with an honor-based society, we knew that surrender would go against their shame culture. So in World War II, we dropped the bomb tragically. Now in doing so, lots of innocent people were killed. The greater good was that millions and millions of people were saved because one bomb was dropped. It does not in any way minimize the pain and the tragedy of what happened that day, but there was a context by which this severity was required for a greater good. Now, Think about that context here. Could there be something going on with the Amalekites that's a similar situation? Or how about a movie? Uh, With this pandemic going on, maybe you've thought of a movie like Outbreak. We watched it as a family. Outbreak tells the story of Ebola that gets released into the United States. And it's severe and it's spreading fast. And they contain it into a small city. But when they get everyone in the small city, it's contaminated everyone. Men, women, children, even the animals. Think Chernobyl. Right? So what has to be done? Because of the contagion that is so severe and has the potential to kill everybody in the United States in the movie, while Dustin Hoffman's working on a solution, 
The government is actually thinking about bombing that small little town to destroy even some innocents to keep the contagion from spreading. Tragic? Yes. Horrible? Yes. Are we glad that Dustin Hoffman found a solution? Yes. But there was a context by which the contagion was so bad they didn't want it to spread. Okay, I'll give you one more example. If you think of the Middle East, there are places in the Middle East where there are terrorist training camps. Or from the time a child is very, very young, mothers and children, toddlers are taught to hate, to kill, and to strap on bombs. Now imagine if that culture was not just the exception to the rule, but it became the normative behavior. And it spread and spread and spread until the entire culture of every age was thinking that way. There might be two times in all of recorded history that that culture had to be rooted out so it doesn't spread. So that's the idea of the things we looked at here. The idea is that there have been a few times in history we can think of that things have needed to be rooted out, though tragic, for a greater good. So that is the type of culture God's alluding to here as he speaks to the culture of the Amalekites. Now let me give you the specific biblical examples of the context he's describing of what that culture was like. What type of biblical context was happening here that would advocate God using such a severe level of punishment during this time? Well, let's dive in. What is the context of the Amalekites? Well, here in 1 Samuel 15, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I'm going to punish Amalek for what he did to Israel. So this is a just punishment for something they did. What is this context? When he ambushed him, Amalek, the country ambushed Israel on the way up when he came from Egypt. All right, well, what happened? Remember, it says in Deuteronomy. So again, to understand what's happening in 1 Samuel, we have to jump back like 400 years-ish to at least a couple hundred to the time of Deuteronomy. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt. How he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks okay all the stragglers remember that word stragglers at your rear when you were tired and weary and he did not fear God therefore it shall be that when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around in the land which the Lord your God has given you to possess as an inheritance fast forward he's talking about when you're in the land with Joshua and now with Samuel You will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. All right, Chad, how does that help? All right, let's think about the word stragglers. When the people were coming out of Egypt and they were heading to the promised land, they were set up with 12 different tribes and the tribe of Dan was at the rear. And the tribe of Dan's job was to protect the weak, the slow-moving ones, which included the handicapped, the elderly, those who weren't moving very fast, maybe some pregnant women, uh, the hurting, the sick. So those at the back were those that weren't moving very fast. And again, Deuteronomy brought a brand new ethic of war that if you were gonna go to war, number one, you had to tell the opposing nation you were at war so they could prepare. Two, you had to have a just cause. Three, when you went to attack somebody, you had to try and not hurt civilians right, to protect the innocent. Now, Amalek does the opposite. They don't declare war, 
they ambush the people at the back and they go after the innocent civilians and they go after the stragglers or the herding. They just come through and maliciously destroy the handicapped and the poor and the sick with no mercy at all. So God says, because of that, I'm going to give you time to repent. But if you don't repent and this contagion of evil and killing off of the innocent without any morality or conscience, if it continues to grow, I'm eventually gonna hold you to account. Well, doesn't that sound like God's got a real grudge problem? No, no, no. He's very patient waiting for them to change. And after 400 years, they don't. So that's why I say the third thing is the countdown for the Malachites. Again, I can be patient for a day or a week maybe a couple years for somebody to change. But haven't you ever prayed that prayer like, God, do something, fix the evil, stop that stuff, bring justice. God is so patient, he waits the Amalekites for 400 years. That's like twice the age of our entire country. And things don't get better, they get worse. This culture of killing, this culture of attacking, this culture teaching to their children on up, it's okay to destroy the weak and other people, has become so severe that he says, now after 400 years of patience, I need to blot it out because they have not repented. All right, so let me, let me summarize. And again, I know this is difficult. This is the most difficult passage in the Bible, and I'm trying to explain it in less than 15 minutes. But here's a couple highlights. Number one, let's remember that there's no modern equivalent for this example. This was a one-time-in-history example where God said, because of something done 400 years earlier, I'm going to hold them to account. This is not prescriptive for anyone to ever use the Bible again in this way. Two, this was an exception to the rule, and it only happened twice. Three, the context here was so severe that something happened that took 400 years to develop that had somehow become a contagion that had destroyed every child, every adult, every man, every woman in a way that was irredeemable. Again, not a modern equivalent. Three, for the children that had died that day, they are under the age of accountability. What that means is they would go directly to heaven because God's work at Passover and eventually Jesus on the cross covered children who didn't have the ability to discern or understand their own brokenness. It's called the age of accountability. Lastly, let's remember that God doesn't forbid killing. He forbids murder. Murder is having an unjust cause. In other words, when you defend yourself with self-defense, you have a just cause when you kill someone. Most of our law even today in our legal system is based on differentiating between an unjust killing and a just killing, right? When you see a murderer trying to kill someone innocent and you kill the murderer, you have a just cause. You did something good by protecting life. And the same thing is true when it comes to the ethics of war. So again, I know that was a mouthful. I know that was very, very complicated. But I think it's helpful to understand that as a church, Part of you wants to skip these kind of passages. But we dig into the Bible and take on the most challenging passages in the Bible because great questions deserve at least good answers. All right? Now, how do you do that when you come across other passages? Well, 
one of the tools we've created in our, in our app for you is Bible study tools when you come across a difficult passage of the Bible. So if you download your app, type in Horizon Space CC, and it will come up with this screen. If you click on the top left corner, the three arrows, a menu comes down. At the very bottom, there's things about messages and reflections and a place to give here. But down here is Bible apps and tools. If you click on Bible apps and tools, lots of resources come up. One is called Bible Study Tools and the Blue Letter Bible. This is one of the ways we've put tools in your hand so when you come across a passage like 1 Samuel 15, you can click on Blue Letter Bible, type in that passage, MP3s will come up, personal notes from pastors will come up, ways for you to really unpack these challenges together. Now if you remember a few weeks ago, I did an interview at our exploring service. If you didn't get a chance to watch it, you can download our Anchored series. And I I heard the story and I interviewed Mike Collette, who began to describe his journey during the COVID crisis. He said that this has felt like he's been held underwater as a business person and tried to play chess. He also described that it was during this challenging time he began to read his Bible. He began to seek after God in a way he never really has before. Well, we know that there are different seasons in your life that you're gonna need God's promises, you need to unpack some challenges. And Mike mentioned that as he gets into his study Bible, like I was reading earlier, there's little notes on the side of his study Bible that have been very, very helpful. Well, this is a digital version of that study Bible. In fact, one of the things I want you to realize is that you've got a study Bible right in the palm of your hand with our app. You can use these tools to listen, to watch, or to read commentary or explanation on these challenging passages. We so believe in comfortably connecting people to God through the Bible as a church that we wanted to create a resource and tool to help you do that. It's why we give around here. We give financially so that we can have tools to help people wherever they are in their journey get to know God. In fact, we're in a very unique season. I'm very excited to announce that we're gonna be opening the doors very, very soon, and I should have more details for you next week as we move forward for our reopening. Now, as you're giving in that time, we are planning out the next six months, and we are delaying some hires for several key hires we have because we're not exactly sure what our forecasting is related to the future. So, as many of you are doing, we're curtailing some of our spending, we're delaying some of our key hires that we need to make in order to manage our money well. And so we're looking forward to discerning what God's doing in our financial revenue as we set up for these new services and new openings for people coming back in our door. And so if you're praying about, and if you're sensing God really moving you to help us put the tools in place for the next year, I'd encourage you to use our app to give to be part of that. All right, so that's the tools for studying a difficult part of the Bible. Now let's get back to the bigger context. How do we deal with the inner deception in all of our hearts? Because this is where the real application is in this passage. You and I have a tendency to lie to ourselves. Saul does. He doesn't see the truth right in front of him. In fact, in this passage, we see four symptoms to ways we lie to ourselves. Here's the first one, compromise. Am I unwilling 
to wholly or fully obey the voice and commandment of God. So Saul attacked the Amalekites. So far, so good. He also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive. Ooh. Rather than killing him in battle, he decides to take him as a trophy that he can parade through the streets back home and say, look, I'm the guy who caught Agag. But he did utterly destroy all the other people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag, didn't wholly obey, they compromised, and they spared the best of the sheep, the best of the oxen, the best of the fatlings, the best of the lambs, and all that was good. Now, he was willing to destroy the bad, thin, scrawny, sick cows and sheep, but they were unwilling to destroy them, the good ones. Everything despised or bad and worthless, they were utterly destroyed. So why is this important? Well, it's because what motivates compromise? See, these weren't just sheep and oxen. That was money in those days. And God had said, this money is blood money. The Amalekites got this money or resources through murdering people, doing treacherous things. I don't want any of this blood contagion contagion contaminated resources in Israel. Think of my example from the movie Outbreak. Imagine if all of the animals had the contagion of Ebola. Spiritually, all of these resources were gotten through ill-gotten means, and that's why God said, destroy them. Do not take this, these riches or these resources to yourself. But Saul's like, oh, come on, I'll half obey and compromise I really could use the money. So money becomes the motivation for him to compromise. What is it that motivates you to compromise? To not wholly and fully obey God. Our second symptom is hard-heartedness. Can I grieve over breaking God's heart? It's not just breaking his law, but you're breaking God's heart when you disobey him. We see that in the passage in two ways. Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king. He's turned back from following me. He's not performed my commandments. And Samuel was grieved and he cried out to the Lord all night. It's one thing just to say, well, I'm gonna work the system and there's kind of this do's and don'ts and God wants me to do stuff. I may do it, I may not. But have you ever thought about disobedience as breaking God's heart? I was talking to a friend recently who's been on an incredible spiritual journey here at Horizon. I have seen him grow in ways that I didn't even think were possible over 10 years, let alone over a few years. As he and an accountability partner were talking to me recently, they were just reflecting on all the ways God has worked, overcoming temptation, changes in marriage, changes in family, and just a closeness with God that he had not experienced before. And so the accountability partner asked this question. Of all the things God has done in the last few years, of all the things you've experienced, what surprises you the most? And he thought he would say that my marriage is still together, that my family's so forgiving, that God could be so real to me. But he paused for a moment. What surprises me the most? 
that I was able to rationalize my old behavior so easily. I can't believe that when I was doing what I was doing, I had talked myself into believing it was okay. That's what strikes me the most. See, that's grieving and repenting. God, oh my goodness. My capacity to lie to myself, Father, I need to be close to you so I can see the truth. Grieve over how you've broken God's heart, how you've compromised the truth, but also how you've distorted the truth. And that's our third symptom. Our third symptom is when you begin to distort what's right and wrong, you don't even know what's right and wrong anymore because you've become what the Bible says, wise in your own eyes. Then Samuel went to Saul and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. It's good to see you, Samuel. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel turns to him and says, Oh, yeah? Then what is the bleeding of sheep I hear? And what is the lowing of oxen in my ears? If you obeyed God and destroyed all that blood money, why do I hear sheep and oxen all around me. He can't even discern right and wrong. Which leads us to the fourth symptom, rationalization. Can I own and repent of my own wrongdoing? Saul said, oh, 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 well they have brought them from the Malachites. Uh, the people spared the best of sheep, it wasn't me. Oh, and the oxen. Oh, and by the way, we used the best. We sacrificed a bunch of them to the Lord. That's the treasury of the church is full. Doesn't that make it okay? And the rest, we utterly destroyed. We did obey a little bit. To which Samuel says, be quiet. Shut up. I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And Saul says, speak on. You know, we all need someone in our life who's close enough to see the truth about our behavior, about how we speak, how we parent, how we act. Do you have someone in your life who knows you well enough and that you've given permission to say, shut up, be quiet, stop lying to yourself. That is not true. We need that. I don't know if you've ever gotten into our men's study coming up this fall, our women's group, or you've ever just invited like somebody to do one-on-one Bible study with you, but it's not just Bible study, you're sharing life with each other. We have these stories all around Horizon. And I'd encourage you, if you're not in a group, get into even a one-on-one relationship where somebody can challenge you to say, be quiet, you're compromising here. Be quiet, you're rationalizing here. Let me help you get closer to God. And I think in the middle of all the challenges of this passage, the dilemma and the deception, that's the main takeaway. What does it look like to repent? What does it mean to repent of just one of those symptoms? Think of those four areas of your life. Is it compromise? Is it hard-heartedness? Is it rationalization? 
is that the inability to grieve how you've broken God's heart because you've distorted right and wrong. You see, Samuel goes on to tell Saul, you need to repent of what you've done. You didn't do it last time. You're not doing it this time. And giving these contaminated resources to God do not make up for your broken heart. In fact, it's a very famous part of the Bible here, a speech he gives. He says, in obeying the voice of the Lord, it is better to obey than to sacrifice. God longs and loves obedience. But because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you. Well, Saul says to Samuel, what do you mean? I'm gonna lose my kingship? Yeah. So he has this repentance and it sounds like real repentance, but all it really is is I'm scared I'm gonna lose my influence. I think that's why we need to repent of one of these symptoms. We need to look real deeply. Is this real repentance? I'm really broken over how I've broken God's heart? Or am I just repenting because I don't like the consequences? Here's what he says. Saul says, I have sinned. I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin. Return with me that I may worship the Lord. Sounds like he's repenting of the symptoms. But Saul knows his heart. He just doesn't want the consequences of what he's done. In fact, Saul grabs Samuel's robe as he's walking off and ends up tearing his robe to which Samuel looks at Saul and says, just as you have torn my robe, the Lord has torn the kingdom from you and given it to someone better than you. The strength of Israel, a man after his own heart. And this is what sets up King David. Because Saul, though he looks repentant, he's not. And Saul, in begging for his kingdom, but not looking at his own heart, is going to lose the kingdom because the greater the authority you are in life, the greater the responsibility and accountability you've held toward. Samuel then turns and says, bring King Agag over here, and he kills him himself. Now, one of the things that's also helpful in this dilemma is that the Amalekites end up having a great, 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 great grandson named Haman. And because the Amalekites are not utterly destroyed, one of their descendants becomes their version of Hitler during the Persian Empire, where Haman, because of his hatred of Esther and his hatred of Mordecai, gets the Persian king to declare a a genocide of all the Israelites. So in one sense, we jump backwards 400 years and the Amalekites were trying to kill off the Israelites. We jump forward in time and we have Haman trying to kill off the Israelites. So part of why God intervened at this time with Saul was to stop a future Holocaust, which he didn't do, even with Samuel's intervention. So what does repentance look like and what does it mean for you and I to repent of one of those four symptoms? I heard a powerful story about Bart Millard. Maybe you've heard at church uh, Albert sing I Can Only Imagine or one of our band perform Even If. But the story behind that story is powerful. It's a story of a man who when he was in third grade 
his parents got divorced and he was living with his father. His father was a monster. He abused him three or four times a week. Bart said the only time he ever saw his father cry was one night after a beating. He was black and blue from his head to his hands to his toe, laying on his stomach in his bed, just whimpering and crying when his father threw the door open, turned on the lights, said, what are you crying about? And his father saw the black and blue damage he'd done to his son and he began to weep. Weep over what he had done. Weep over how broken a man he was. That abuse would continue for three more years. In sixth grade, Bart was big enough to, to protect himself and so the physical abuse turned to verbal abuse. But in ninth grade, Bart's father got cancer. Bart was glad. It's about time the universe and God punishes my dad for all his evil. But God wanted to change Bart's father's heart. And this cancer began to eat away at his body but began to resurrect his soul. Bart said he would listen in through the wall between his room and his father's in high school and he would hear his father praying. He never heard his father pray, ever. His father was praying for God's grace, praying for Bart and his brother. He says, something's happening inside of my dad. Over the next couple of years, his dad began to repent. He sat down with Bart and Bart wanted judgment for his dad. His dad would just weep and say, I'm so sorry for what I've done. I'm so sorry for how I treated you. I'm so sorry for what I did to you. Will you please, please forgive me? They had one of those big family Bibles, you know, the ones that nobody ever opens, it just sits on your end table. Bart said he would come home through high school and find his father, body just continuing to be deteriorated by cancer, slumped over in the big open family Bible, seeking God's wisdom and God's help. He said when he got to college, his father passed away. And he said, but God gave me the most incredible front row seat to repentance. He said, I got to see my father transform from a monster I hated to a man I wanted to become. And he wrote the song, I can only imagine, to imagine being in heaven with his father, wrapping his arms around him when his soul had been restored and his body had been restored. So will you repent today? Will you pray for those that you're angry at to repent today? That we can all experience heaven in all its glory with a God of mercy and grace. Maybe you want that promise today. Why don't you pray along with me? Something like this. Father, help me see the truth. I repent of ways I have thought I knew better than you. I accept your gift of forgiveness from Jesus on the cross and I invite your Holy Spirit to tell me to be quiet so I can hear the truth. I want to be in heaven with you and I can only imagine what it will be like. In Jesus' name, amen.